If there is anyone here who somehow fell for last week's lame April Fool's joke and is expecting me to welcome Mark Zuckerberg to the stage, I am deeply sorry. Last summer, our teaching team got together and we started talking about the kinds of things that we wanted to engage in as a community, what kind of themes would be important, and, and the idea of relationships came up. And we listed a number of the different ways that we could explore the relationships that we're in in our lives, how the challenges we face and, and how our faith calls us to live in them. And so in the fall, as I tried to put some flesh on that, I came up with this idea for this series about the people who drive us crazy, who are often also the people that we love, as Helen has already pointed out. And so we're going to spend some time this month looking at some of these relationships, our friendships, our workplace relationships, marriage, children. And I understand that each of these weeks could be perceived as being exclusive if you don't fall into one of those categories but we are a community where all of these relationships are being lived out. So we're going to learn together. We're going to learn from one another. As Eugene Peterson writes, everything that God is and everything that we are intersects locally in the company of family and friends and the immediate circumstances of our lives. So this is where we're going to go. Next week, we're going to ask, what do we do when the place we're in, whether that's an office or the home or the classroom, does more to take away from our humanity than to enhance it? And what do we do when the people we spend our days with contribute more to our toil than to our satisfaction? The following week we'll ask, how can setting aside self-interest in marriage strengthen not only our spousal relationships, but all of our relationships? And might marriage actually be a symbol that points beyond itself, implicating us in a deeper, holier mystery still? And then finally we'll ask in what ways can parents and children become sources of joy and vitality for one another? And how can the church be a place where we understand that family isn't bounded by genealogy, but extends to who we are as the people of God? That's where we're going, but this morning we're going to ask, what does it mean to be a friend? And does a life of faith have anything to do with how we form our friendships in the ways that we live them out? Now, I was a little concerned when I gave a title to this message, I called it Friends, Both Real and Facebook, and then Facebook went ahead and got itself broiled in controversy. Their stocks plummeted, and I wondered, would it still be around by April 8th? But it's still going, still ticking away. Now, you may be familiar with the story of Facebook and how it got started up by Mark Zuckerberg as a college student at Harvard, and it started off as something known as Face Mash. And a little screenshot here. Basically what he did was he would throw the, the faces of two Harvard students up on the screen and ask the questions. He would say, we, were we let in for our looks? No. Will we be judged on them? Yes. And then the question is simple. Who's hotter? And you would click the image of one or the other. Now, Facebook has changed over the years. But, but I actually wanted to, to just ask, how much has it changed, really? Is it not really the same thing? You don't know. You don't just judge who's hotter, but you, you scroll and, and you kind of judge who's hotter. You judge whose dog is cuter or whose kids are more talented or, you know, anyways, I'll let you decide that. So I was wondering, has this social media giant with all of its two billion followers challenged and possibly even changed the definition of friend? Because, of course, this is the language that it picks up. Now, we all understand that there's a... Uh, a little bit of joke inside there. You have a thousand friends on Facebook, yet none of them are actually your friend, right? There is a little bit of a joke inside there. It's broadened the definition of friendship, but this morning isn't about how to get more likes or pokes or whatever else you can get. It's about the importance of being a good friend. 
The Proverbs are chock full of little pithy sayings about what friends are all about. Proverbs 12, 26 says, The righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Choosing friends, that's important, but so is being a friend to the person who chooses you. There's a movie I saw a little while ago called Wonder, and it's a fantastic little movie. It's about this boy who has severe facial deformities, and it's about him kind of navigating life within his family, but also within his social circles in his school. And there's a line that the author of the book that the movie was based on writes. He says, it's not enough to be friendly. You have to be a friend. There's a difference between the two of them. Being a friend is more difficult than being friendly. In light of the Parkland shootings uh, a number of weeks ago, I read a post that someone shared with me, and it was speaking in response to the students who were walking out of their schools in solidarity with those whose lives were lost. And the person who was writing wanted to, to put a challenge out there, that those same students would walk back in and befriend the people who were being excluded in their schools. Because it's one thing to stand up and, and maybe protest, you know, and in some cases, rightly so, uh, societal problems. But each of us has an opportunity to respond personally and specifically to the broken relationships, to the exclusion, and to the, the people who struggle without friends in their lives. The call to be a good friend, it starts in grade school, on through high school, but it never really stops. The friendships we find ourselves in, they're the soil where much of our spiritual growth or our lack thereof, takes root. In fact, it's in our friendships that we practice and grow in our following of Christ. As another proverb says, one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Well, this morning's reading introduced us to two such friends, and though they lived more than 3,000 years ago, their friendship continues to be an inspiration. So we first meet Jonathan, the son of Saul, Israel's first king, in 1 Samuel 14. As he sneaks away from the army that he was a part of and engages in hand-to-hand combat with a detachment of Philistines, he single-handedly takes out a bunch of these guys. He was the original Black Panther, fighting for his people only without the sick suit and powers. While he was busy fighting, though, Jonathan missed his father the king's command that no one in the army would eat that day. And so having just destroyed a bunch of people in battle, he was hungry. And as they were walking through the woods, he saw a honeycomb. And he dipped the end of his staff in the honey and started eating it. Well, when his father found out about this, he was furious. And we pick up the conversation that happened between Saul and his son Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14, verse 43 to 44. Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I merely tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now must I die? Saul said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. So now listen, I mean, any of you who complain about your fathers, just like take this story into consideration. You ate the honey, you die. Right? Anyways, Saul had some issues. Needless to say, he was mentally unstable, to say the least, which is how he first came to meet David, actually. The Bible tells us that Saul was suffering from this this kind of oppression, and he was being tormented, and he asked for some help here. And so his advisors went out, and they found this young guy named David who had some serious harp skills, and they brought him into the palace. And whenever David would play his harp, Saul would be at peace, and he would feel this kind of calmness. And and so David began to be the, the musician for Saul in his house. He became a musician in Saul's house, but it wasn't until after his famous defeat of Goliath that he struck up a friendship that would end up sparing his own death. 
Now, I mean, if this is your first time in church, you've probably still heard the story of David and Goliath. You basically get the story about this young boy who took on this giant, killed him with a slingshot. Uh, We know that this story, and this is really what launched David into superstardom. And uh, after he had killed Goliath, there's a story that goes on about um, Saul, who evidently wasn't that aware of who this harpist was, because he didn't really recognize David in the battle. And he has a conversation with one of his commanding officers. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, surely as he live, O king, I don't know. The king said, find out whose whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as, his, as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his self. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. When I was maybe five years old, the summer before I entered kindergarten, my family moved from Waterloo to the city of Kitchener, Ontario. And it wasn't a long move, but it's a long move for a five-year-old. And I have like these vague memories of that moving day. And I remember at one point seeing that across the street there lived a a boy who looked about my age. And I went to bed that night and and woke up in the morning and decided that I was going to go and meet this boy. So I walked across the street, and thanks to Google Maps, I can actually show you the house. And So this is the little path that my five-year-old feet walked up, and the little steps. They they were much more daunting uh, in my memory. Um, But I went up and knocked on the door, and I asked, I said, is Peter here? And the parents kind of looked at me and, you know, who is this boy and how do you know our son? And then they called him and he came to the door. And he was equally surprised that I knew his name. Now, at that point, I realized that I had magical powers because I had somehow learned the name of this neighbor without being told. And really for a long time, I I believed that I had magical powers until I eventually realized, oh, I probably like overheard my parents talking about it or something in the house and then just assumed that I had magical powers. Um, But it was wonderful. So I met Peter Kennard and he became my best friend until we moved all the way from Kitchener to Waterloo later in my life. The moment we meet a new friend is rarely so dramatic. But it was for Jonathan. And actually, when I was looking for pictures of of the friendship between David and Jonathan, I found this PowerPoint slide from uh, another sermon, and I thought this was great. Now, if you can't see it, it's kind of something unique here, and I'll just blow it up on the next slide for you. So here they are, like, walking down the street, and David's just like, he's just like, yep, carrying a head. Like, hey, nice to meet you. What's your name? David. What's your name? Jonathan. What's in your hand? Yeah, it's a head. You know, like, how does that conversation go? So weird. So these two guys are different in in some significant ways. Jonathan, as we've already heard, was the son of royalty. His father was the king. David took care of his father's sheep. That's a pretty lowly task. But they were also very similar. If Jonathan was the Black Panther, David was the Avengers. All of them. 
Like he was all of them together. He had just destroyed this giant. And as he would go on, he would like destroy all kinds of people in battle. In fact, the, the Israelites, they came up with a song and dance routine that they would sing that the Bible records for us. And it goes like this. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. So David had this reputation for being a huge warrior. And so Jonathan, who again at the beginning we meet, sneaking off from the army to go take on these guys one-on-one, -on -one, they have this bond. They're like, we both like killing people. This is fantastic. But because of this song and dance routine that Saul had heard about, a bitter rivalry developed between King Saul and David. And the mad king tried on numerous occasions to have David killed. Let me pick up the story in 1 Samuel 19, verses 1 to 6. Saul told his, told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent, innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. But Saul couldn't bear it, and in a short order tried to pin David to the wall with a spear. Seriously, his oaths didn't really mean a whole lot those days. Which brings us to the occasion of this morning's reading and David's legitimate fear. He knew that Saul was, Saul was angry at him. He knew he was trying to come after him. And so he said to Jonathan, you got to help me out here. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. When Jonathan first gave his robe to David as a pledge of friendship. It was no empty act. He was prepared even to stand up to his father, the king. The reading that we had ended this way. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. The angry words of Saul. That's how the reading ended, but how did the story end? Well, Jonathan questioned his father, the king, who promptly threw a spear at him, and then the next morning, Jonathan set out to warn David and spared his life. In the words of the Beatles, I get by with a little help from my friends. That's exactly what happened here. A little help from Jonathan. David got the slip and off he was. When David needed a friend more than ever, Jonathan was there. Now, there's so much to this story. It's a beautiful, rich, complex story. But more than we have time for this morning. But there's something that Jonathan said that I wanted to draw attention to and explore a bit further. He said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. What did he mean by this? What does it mean to be friends in the name of the Lord? Cue the Michael W. Smith music. Friends are friends forever if the Lord's the Lord of them. That's what it means, right? Is it really that straightforward, though? As long as we both serve God, we're good to go. We'll be friends forever. Sharing faith with someone can form a strong foundation for friendship. I'll give Michael W. Smith that. But it's a foundation that needs to be built on. So here's a scenario for you. You're in a rubber life raft with a friend. 
You're approaching an island. The raft is leaking. And you're within sight of land. In the raft with you are a set of signal flares, a weak supply of canned food, and a five-gallon container of water. You must throw one of these overboard if you're going to make it to the island. Which one do you choose? Now, quick show of hands. How many people chose to throw the friend overboard? Oh, not bad, not bad. Okay, an honest one. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave Fish, for acknowledging that you throw your friend out of the life raft. Just in case any of you are Dave Fish's friend, now might be the time to end that friendship. Depending on the friend that you pictured in the boat with you, like, you never know. Maybe you did have that thought, because friendships can be difficult. It's fine to sing a song about it, but friendship, real friendship, can be difficult. Eugene Peterson said that perfect is not a word we use to describe friendship relationships. Perfect is a word that refers to inanimate things, a perfect circle, say, or a perfectly straight line, but not a perfect friendship. Friendships are challenging. No friendship will be perfect, but we don't have to settle for something mediocre either. Jonathan determined from the onset to build his friendship with David in the name of the Lord, with an expression of loyalty and of trust, which is the perfect place to start. Smart businesses know this. I was thinking about this kind of stat I'd heard, and I found this little infographic here. On average, loyal customers are worth up to 10 times more than their first purchase. A company knows that if they can hang on to a customer, their spending will multiply over time. 80% of your future profits will most likely come from 20% of your existing customers. And a mere 5% increase in customer retention can increase profits by more than 25%. So a smart company knows that loyalty is worth a lot. Are we supposed to view friends as customers then? Is that what I'm suggesting? Well, no. But what we're supposed to realize is how valuable loyalty is. That it brings significant profit, not only in, in a business sphere, but it brings profit in our lives. To be loyal to someone, to have their loyalty extended to us as well. David wrote Psalm 12 during this time of running away from this mad king. Help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Everyone lies to their neighbor. They flatter with their lips, but harbor deception in their hearts. This is the time when Jonathan was the only person that David could count on. Every other person in his life had been unfaithful, had been unloyal. A friendship with loyalty built into it is worth more than a dozen without, and a godly friend knows how to put that loyalty into action. Jonathan made himself available for David. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. And we are invited to offer the same presence to others. Jack Deere writes that our closest friends are the ones who can interrupt our plans without causing us any irritation. The deeper the friendship, the greater the availability. In real friendship, availability is reciprocal. We make ourselves available to the other a couple of months ago, Sophia sprained her ankle and she wanted to go to the hospital. And before we left, she said, can I, can I invite my friend and see if she wants to come? Why would anyone want to come and sit in a hospital ER waiting room? Like, you know how it works, right? You know? 
you're sitting there for ages. You're just wasting your life away. Coughs and vomit and smells and people. It's weird. It's a bad place to be. Can I invite my friend? No. Why would you want to invite a friend? Well, it's better than waiting with a parent, she said. <laughs> After we'd been sitting there for a couple hours, I, I turned and I said, so how am I doing? Kind of shrugged and went back to her phone. <laughs> Friends are there for one another. They're present when they, their friend needs them the most. As another proverb says, a friend loves at all times. This is a story about Jonathan and David, but I want it to be a story about ourselves as well. How available do you make yourself to the people in your life? Are you willing to say something as bold as whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you? A God-centered friendship has as its core a spirit of sacrifice. This beautiful passage from Philippians chapter 2 reminds us of the attitude that we are called to have. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Where else does it apply as strongly when it comes to our friendships that rather than putting ourselves first, we put the other first? Now, of course, there are risks in doing this. Jonathan became the target of his father's anger. And he knew that that was a likelihood. David said, we heard in the reading, like, are you sure? Like, this is not going to go well. And Jonathan's like, I'm willing to do this for you. There are risks in putting someone else's interest in front of your own. And there are costs. Saul told Jonathan that he would never succeed him as king as long as David lived. Like, think about how important that would have been to Jonathan, that he was next in line for the throne. If you stand up for this friend of yours, you are never going to become king. But a friend puts a friend before herself. A friend puts a friend before himself. You go back to the Facebook illustration. How many times do you, you know, find yourself comparing and trying to to look better than the people around you instead of putting others before you and and celebrating them and who they are well there's this great example and you can imagine it was at this time it was when david was hiding when he's writing this psalm about how no one's faithful and no one's loyal and all of a sudden in the midst of that hiding jonathan runs into david like out in the hills and they have this brief conversation and he comes to david and he says You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. What a powerful statement. It's not like he was just, like, willing to not be the next king. He was actually determined to give his friend the place that he had rightly earned. What an example Jonathan leaves us, wishing only the absolute best for David. No. Friendships don't last forever just because the Lord's the Lord of them. They last when that foundation is built on with loyalty, presence, self-sacrifice, with love. Now here's the thing. Here's the really good news in all of this. In every friendship that looks like this, we catch a glimpse of God's heart for each one of us. 
Catherine Lacuna writes, the very nature of God is to seek out the deepest possible communion and friendship with every last creature on earth. I had to edit my notes last night after dinner. We were having a conversation. Owen was at work, and Jude was staying over at her friend's house, and it was just Melissa and I and Sophie at the dinner table. And I don't know how the conversation got here, um, but Melissa asked Sophie a question. Who is your best friend? There's only one right answer. Sophie, without a moment's hesitation, said, God. Melissa, without a moment's hesitation, said, nope. It was her. God's maybe number two. I've got some work to do. I don't know if you've ever thought about God this way, as a friend. But there's a deep truth in this that is often missed due to a basic misunderstanding of how God looks at us. We think of God as like a boss, or we think of God as like a, a military dictator, or we think of God as, as a far distant kind of presence in the universe, or we, or we think of God as a taskmaster, or we think of God as a grandfather, but we don't tend to think of God as a friend. And yet, as he did so many occasions, Jesus wanted to, to help us understand the heart of our Father. In John 15, as he gathered around with, with his followers, his disciples, he said, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. Now, as someone who's seeking to follow Jesus, that might take you a while to wrap your head around being a friend of Jesus. But even if it takes the rest of your life, there's nothing more important for you to know. At that same conversation, Jesus said, to those friends, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus came to reveal that God is not this distant presence or this taskmaster in the clouds or this overbearing parent demanding our obedience, but that God is a friend. God is a master, yes, but not one who lords it over those who follow. And this is precisely, of course, what Jesus did. He laid down his life so we might live. He demonstrated the ultimate love of a friend. An example for us to follow in our relationships and friendships with one another. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to dismiss us and send us out to our discussion groups. And a couple of notes. The first is that if you would like to linger in this place and perhaps have someone spend some time in prayer with you. In the first couple of pews here, we're going to have members of our prayer team who will be available, and this is something we're going to kind of try to do moving forward. So we do have to move from this place as far as standing around and chatting goes, but if you'd like to linger and, and think or pray through some of this with someone, you're welcome to join, join us here. And the other thing I wanted to say as we head into these discussion groups, I read this quote, and uh, I wanted to share it as we head off to this t- part of our service together. It's from Leonard Sweet, and he was kind of imagining the difference between what church is now compared to what it used to be. He says, whereas people used to go to church to meet old friends, they now go to church to meet new friends. And I wonder if that's true for some of us. And I thought, you know, maybe as we make our way out through these doors, through the lobby, and 
grab a seat at a table in the gym where we can engage in some discussion. Maybe just keep that in mind, specifically today more than a usual week, perhaps. That maybe this is a day when you meet new friends. That maybe this is a day when you strike up a, a friendship or a conversation with someone that can become something uh, more than just sitting around a table with a stranger. So I'd like to pray and end this part of our service together. Lord, I'm grateful for the example that you set of what a friend is. I'm grateful that we can read a story like that of the bond between Jonathan and David and understand that, that true friendship is something that, that can be had, but it's going to require sacrifice. It's going to require the kind of loyalty and presence that true friendship requires of us. I ask that your spirit would give us the strength to be that kind of friend for the people around us. I ask that you would lead us into new friendships and new relationships, even in this place this morning. And I pray, perhaps above and beyond all, that you would remind us that you call us friends because we know what your business is, because you've invited us into this work of the kingdom. And I ask that you would help us to see that and live out of it. In Christ's name, amen. So I'd invite you to make your way out of here into the gym for some discussion. We will formally wrap up our time together at 11 o'clock. Thank you.